Dear Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful promise that you made to Abraham uh, many thousands of years ago. We thank you for the duration of your faithfulness that it goes into eternity. We thank you that as we look at the life of Abraham, we see the growth of a believer from simple faith to faithfulness. Uh, we praise you that you are the one who gives the growth, that you are the one who teaches and instructs, that you are the one who carries us through our lives and trains us to follow you. We ask that you would do that with us here today. We pray that the Holy Spirit would guide us as we learn this, uh, this story of Abraham's life, this historical account, that you would apply that doctrine to our hearts so that we would understand how we are to go and live in light of this promise that you gave to Abraham. So we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We are in the life of Abram now, and in the very first few verses, we get the first 75 years of his life. So we're moving pretty fast uh, through Abram, but then we're, we are going to slow down for a few months. Here we see that God is preparing Abram, and he's preparing him for something very specific. And at the beginning of his preparation, he does give to him a promise this will guarantee God's faithfulness to Abram to fulfill this promise and guarantee Abram's success as well. So to begin, we'll look at what we are going to learn in this message. And then, of course, at the end, we'll look at what we did learn during this message. And it will, it will hopefully be the exact same thing since I copy-pasted this slide to the end. But here, what we are going to learn this morning is that God prepares to vindicate his purpose in creation through a single nation, and that is Israel. He does this by separating them from the world, by training them in obedience and promising them ultimate blessing. In the nation of Israel and through his covenant program, what he is going to restore is creation itself so that he can be vindicated in creation's purpose to bring God ultimate glory. He is going to restore man's delegated rule over creation through the king who will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, Jesus Christ. And he will restore man's relationship with God through regeneration. So let those ruminate in your mind as we go through this morning's passage, and hopefully by the end you will see just how God plans to do this. The first section of Abram's life we are going to tackle is in chapters 12, 13, and 14. We're going to do this in just a few weeks. Um, and so some, some weeks, like number five here, we're going to do an entire chapter in one week. This is probably a pleasant surprise from Genesis 1 through 11 that we did last year, where sometimes we took months to get through a chapter. We are going to move faster because we do want to get the big picture of what's going on in Abraham's life. We don't want to lose the forest in the leaves. This morning, though, we focus in on just a few verses where we are going to see the genealogy that leads to Abram, how God is separating one people group from the nations to create a nation all of his own. We're going to see the geography or the land that God is promising them and the land that they are occupying at the moment. 
And then we will ultimately see the great blessing that God has in store for Israel and for the entire world through Israel. And hopefully by the end of this message and by the end of looking at the life of Abram, we will have a deep respect for God's purpose with Israel and his plan to restore creation and the glory of God. And also our role in this as well, because we are not Israel. We are the church. We share in their covenant blessings because we have been grafted in. But these covenant blessings that we're about to look at belong to Israel, and God will fulfill them into and through Israel. So at the beginning here in Genesis eleven twenty-seven, as God redirects and starts to fix the problem that he has just spent 11 chapters through Moses explaining to us, here we see yet another chapter division in the book of Genesis. And these aren't chapters as they've been placed in by human authorship, but as they've been placed in by divine authorship. By the guidance of the Holy Spirit, as Moses penned this record, he divided the book into 11 different chapters, each designating a different family line or a different progression in the family line. So here in the beginning of verse 27, now these are the records of the generations of Terah. We have seen this plenty of times before. Of course, Genesis begins with an account of the heavens and the earth, specifically the generations of the heavens and the earth. A specific word in the Hebrew is used to mark these uh, divisions in the book of Genesis, and that is toledot, which means generations or records. And so we have the records of the heavens and the earth. And this comes after we see the creation of the heavens and the earth, because this is the story of what happens to the heavens and the earth that God created. Just as the Toledot of Adam begins in chapter 5, after Adam's life, because we want to see what came of the promises that God made to Adam. The Toledot of Noah begins in chapter 6, verse 9. And then we see the Toledot of Noah's sons, what happened to the children of Noah that we spent four chapters looking at. That begins in chapter 10. And the Toledot of Shem, the young, or the possibly the youngest son of Noah, begins in chapter 11, verse 10. So these chapter breaks are roughly one to three chapters long. But now we move into the second half of the book, and these chapters get quite a bit longer. We have here the Toledot of Ishmael, which is just a few verses, but then the Toledot of Isaac itself is 11 chapters. The Toledot of Esau and Edom is just a few verses, and then Esau and the Edomites. And then the Toledot of Jacob from 37 to the end of the book, which is 13 chapters. So these are getting longer. Notice we had five in the first 11 chapters and five in the last 25 chapters, and right smack dab in the middle of all these chapters is our chapter on the life of Abram, specifically answering the question, what happened to the generations of Terah? What happened to the son that was born to him? This is from Genesis 11:27 through 25:11, which is what we are going to be focusing on this year. We see right away that Terah didn't have just Abram, but he had at least three sons. We know he had 
at least four children, because Sarai was also one of his children. But Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, usually in these genealogical records, we only get the name of the seed son. We only get one son. But there are a few times where we get three names. We got three names with Cain, Abel, and Seth. We saw God was doing something different, something new. With Cain, we saw that God was ending something. These are the last recorded descendants of Cain. Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. Of course, Naama is added on one of the daughters as a second thought, similarly to how Sarai is going to be added on to this list of three children that Terah has. But with Noah, we got Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And here we get Terah's sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, this does not mean that these are the only children that these men had. This is not a historical distinction in the plan of God, but rather a literary distinction. Moses is the one choosing to write three names here because Moses is using these to catch our attention. Moses is saying God is working something unique and special here. And we're going to branch out and look at the whole family of this line. Now as well, it should be mentioned that the first name in the account is the most important child, the child through which God is fulfilling promise does not mean that they are the oldest. In fact, it is quite frequent that God will use one of the younger children to fulfill the promise. In fact, more often than not, it is the youngest child that he will use. And so we don't want to operate just simply on the uh, supposition that Shem and Abram are the oldest. In fact, we'll see some evidence that Abram is likely the youngest in this line. But, um, as is noted at the bottom of this slide, this is a literary tool used by Moses in Genesis to show new beginnings or ends, such as in Cain's line, and major transitions in God's sea line promise. With Seth, God began again, finishing this tetrad of brothers in the line of Adam. With Cain, these three brothers were the inventors of industry, how man would do things by their own means apart from God. And that ended in destruction. With Noah, God began again with creation in the new creation after the flood, with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And here, God is beginning again in the nation of Israel, with Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And we'll see that they all have a part to play in the nation of Israel, although Abram is the chosen descendant. And so let's dig in a bit in this bloodline because Moses digs in a bit in this bloodline. And he begins to tell us about Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. Now this seems perhaps like a bit of an aside, but Lot is going to factor in a lot in the life of Abram. Lot is one of the first means of Abram's disobedience to God, but he is also one of the means of Abram's faithfulness to God. God is going to tell Abraham to get out of Haran and to leave his father's family behind. And what's he going to do but bring along his nephew Lot, part of his father's household. But God is going to use Abram after his separation with Lot in chapter 13 to rescue and bless not only Lot, but the other nations around him. 
And so what man means for evil, God means for good. But notice as well the similar structure of how Moses is ordering these events. Just a few chapters earlier, when we read about these three sons of Noah, we read, now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And what is the aside that we get here? And Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, when we reached this point in Genesis 9, we thought, now that's a little odd. I thought Shem was the main point of what is to come. But here Moses is supplying the main protagonist. Because from Ham came Canaan, and from Canaan came Nimrod. The biggest problem in God's plan for the nations was that these nations rebelled against God and aligned themselves with one another rather than with God and did not listen to the instruction or the guidance of God. And so these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And now with Lot, what do we get? But in Genesis 19.36, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn, a son, or the first bore a son and called his name Moab, one of the biggest threats to Israel as a nation in the land. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Now Israel was already dealing with the Moabites in numbers, probably around the time that this was written to the Israelites. And so they understood when they heard the name of Lot come up, after they had heard the name of Ham and Canaan come up, that this is going to be a problem in the life of Abram. As for the younger, the younger daughter of Lot, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, and he is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day, the Ammonites, which were as well perennial enemies to the nation of Israel, constantly seeking to extinguish or corrupt them. But that's not the only thing we learn about Haran. We don't know much about Haran. Not many things are said about him, but the things that are said are carefully selected by the pen of Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The next thing we learn about Haran is he dies. Now remember, as we went through Genesis chapter 5 very quickly, what was the repeating pattern? He dies, he dies, he dies, he dies, he dies. But then in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, as we saw more genealogy stacking on, we saw that these children were born, they were born, they were born, they were born, but we don't see any indication that they're dying. We know that they do because we get uh, the numbers of the years that they lived. So we know that they had to die, but here is the first one since the Tower of Babel where we see, and he died. We might fear here we're repeating the same pattern as was before the flood. And indeed we are because we are the same people as we were before the flood. The problem in humanity, that problem of sin now dwelling in the flesh of man, is constantly rebelling against God in his direction. And so we are going to need a divine intervention, God to step in and work miraculously with humanity in order to fix this problem. Not only do we see that Haran died here, but this is the first time that Moses explicitly tells us that a child is dying before his father. Now we know from the records that children have died before their fathers, but Moses has not seen it pertinent to the argument to assert that point yet until now. 
Not only are children dying, but they're dying before their fathers. Humanity is dying. God's plan for a promised seed is being threatened because generations aren't even outliving their fathers anymore. This begs the question, what on earth is God going to do about this problem? He's promised Noah in the Noahic covenant that he is going to sustain humanity. How is he going to do it? This passage and this pulling out of Abraham is his great answer to that problem. Now Haran dies in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans, just a few miles south of Babylon. It was one of the greatest cities of that day. In fact, these people probably scattered from Babylon, but not very far. They just went a few miles south, south towards the Gulf of Persia, and they settled again, and they started building a metropolis. And even today, in the great city of Ur, the Chaldeans, one of these great ziggurats stands. Probably something they learned to do in Babel and hadn't abandoned once their language was confused. God is pulling out of a rebellious nation, a nation for faithfulness. We see that the other two sons, the two that did not die, Abram and Nahor, they take wives for themselves. Now we know Haran had taken a wife because he has children. But that's not the point. The point here is that Abram and Nahor are taking wives for themselves, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Her name will later be changed to Sarah, and we know her as the father of Isaac, through whom Jacob and the rest of the sons of Israel came. In fact, God is going to specify in Genesis chapter 17 that no son but the son through Sarah born to Abram is going to receive this promise that Abram received. It has to be through Sarah. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran and the father of Milcah and Ishka. Now these are these three children of Haran then, as you can see up here in the, I guess it's the right side for you. Haran's children, Milcah, Lot, and Ishkar. Now, Ishkar is the name that we get Ishtar from. Milka means queen, specifically the queen of the moon god Shin. They were here worshiping the moon god in Ur. In fact, Ur and Haran are the two hubs of moon god worship in the ancient world. I think it is no coincidence that these were the two places that Terra lived. Because far from being influenced by the moon god Shin, I think Terra may himself have been revered as the moon god Shin, based on the names of his children. So where he planted this moon worship in Ur, he brought to Haran as well. And uh, actually, if I can go back to these genealogies, one of the reasons why this happens, why they start revering and worshiping their ancestors as gods, is because they're outliving their children. You've got Grandpa Eber up there living 464 years, 
You've got Grandpa Shem still alive after the flood, outliving every single generation under him. They would look at these men who they knew to be generations and generations and generations older than them and think these are some kind of gods because they have conquered death. But really, the issue is that death has not yet progressed so much in their bloodline, but to the younger generations it has. And so there is a tendency of ancestor worship coming from the very roots of Babel because ancestors at one point were outliving their children. And so Terah may have invented this sort of moon god worship to revere some ancestor. But why do we get the descendants of Nahor? Well, Nahor marries his niece, Milcah, probably indicating that Haran was old enough to have a daughter, old enough to marry Nahor. Nahor is at least not the oldest. And he is going to have a son named Bethuel, and Bethuel is going to have two children, Laban and Rebekah, two characters that we are not going to abandon for most of the book of Genesis. But they will come back because Rebekah becomes the wife of Isaac, the son of Abram. And Laban is the father of Rachel, the wife of Jacob. And so we see that God is really keeping it in the family here. When he is pulling out this nation to be unique and set aside, he is not bringing in a bunch of foreigners into the mix. But for now, he is separating and protecting this line, training them on an individual basis to be faithful. Genesis 24.15 shows us that Bethuel is the father of Rebekah. Bethuel, the son of Milcah and Nahor. And then Genesis 29, 5 through 6 shows us Milcah's relationship to Rachel as a grandmother. Now, all of this is important because it's forming a very tight structure, a tight argument that Moses is making in the life of Abram. Because we do have another chiasm that covers the entire span of the section. We see, for example, in Genesis 11, 27 through 28, that Abram is born. And we leave off in Genesis 25, where Abram dies. In eleven twenty nine, we see Abram and Nahor's marriages, marriages that are going to result in the bloodline of Israel. And then in 24, we see the solution to Isaac's need for a wife by finding it in the line of Nahor, and so then there is a marriage between the descendants of Abram and Nahor. In 1130, we see Sarah's barrenness. In 20, well, I guess 21 and 23 here, we see the solution to her barrenness that she had Isaac, but then we see the beginning of her in 1130 and the end of her in chapter 23. In 11.31-32, through 32, we see Abram's incomplete faithfulness to follow God. And in chapter 22, we see his complete faithfulness, not only to follow God, but even to trust him completely that whatever promise he has fulfilled, he will continue to fulfill. Genesis 22 usually does stand out in our minds as one of the most uh, fascinating books in all of Scripture because God asks Abram to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, and he is faithful to do so. Now, 
we're going to spend a few weeks in chapters 12, 13, and 14, and we'll see this is uncharacteristic of Abram to just follow and to follow completely and to follow while trusting the entire time. And this is the progress of sanctification in the life of Abram, how he learns to trust God by walking with him. The middle of this section from chapters 12 through 21 is all about the promise of land, seed, and blessing, and God training Abram to walk in this promise to faith rest in the hands of God. So here at the, uh, at the point where we are introduced to Sarah, we're also introduced to a great mystery that only God can solve. Sarai was barren. Now God is going to work this seed line promise through Abram, but how is he going to do that with a barren wife? Abram and Sarai themselves come up with a lot of solutions for God, but he accepts none of them. It's all the work of man's hands and man's schemings, and this is how God, or this is not how God is going to bring about his purposes. Rather, he is going to solve the problems. Man needs to look to God to solve his problems and not to the works of his own hands. Now, it doesn't just say that she was barren. It says that she had no child. This reduplication is for emphasis. This is a major problem. And this is the first time we see barrenness in the bloodline of humanity. Humanity is really between a rock and a hard place here. And there is only one means of extricating them from that problem. And that is God. But this also foreshadows the way that God is going to fulfill his promise of the seed line because this is not the first time that barrenness occurs in the line. In fact, in Genesis 25, 21, we find that Rebekah herself is barren. And so not only is Isaac's mother barren, and yet she bears him, but here his own wife, Rebekah, is barren. But we see that he does trust the Lord. He has learned that God can overcome this obstacle, and he trusts the Lord to overcome it, and children are born to Rebekah. God overcomes the barrenness, the infertility of the human reproductive system because God designed it. God made it in the first place. Of course, of course he can fix that problem. We also see at least a hint in Genesis chapter 30 that Rachel is barren. How is God going to fix all these problems? But he is the all-powerful God, and to him, nothing is impossible. But it's not by accident that the main issue of how man is going to receive these blessings from God is through the descendant, a descendant in a line that depends so much on God to keep that line going. Because ultimately, the seed promise that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ is going to be fulfilled through a woman who should not be pregnant, but is. In Isaiah 7:14, God, through the prophet Isaiah, promises, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, if it's tough to give a barren woman a child, it should seem impossible 
to give a virgin woman a child. But this is what God does. This is what he's capable of. And we see his care and protection for this seed line leading to Jesus. So that when we meet Mary in the New Testament, we should immediately think back to Genesis. We should think back to what problem God is solving in doing this. The angel said to her, to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Grace. You have found grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, which is the Hebrew word for salvation. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is God's solution to the problem of lost dominion in Genesis 3. This is how God plans to vindicate all of creation, not by the works of human hands, but by the works of his own hands. And Mary questions this, not in unbelief, but in asking, how are you going to do it? Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answers and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that, for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. This problem that Eve thought was being solved in Cain is finally being solved in Mary. After centuries and generations of barren women bearing children, children and bloodlines being nearly cut off. Now, finally, we see that nothing is impossible for God because the power of the Most High and not the power of mankind is going to step in and fulfill these promises. The angel says, Behold, even your relative Elizabeth also conceived a son in her old age. We should think back to Sarah when we see this. Elizabeth was probably well past the age where she could bear a child. And yet God opened her womb as well. God is saying, this has been my faithfulness towards you and towards your line since the very beginning. Notice Mary doesn't question him anymore after this. She understands God and his ability and his faithfulness. She believes him. And you know what she does? She goes to visit her cousin, Aunt Elizabeth. She who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Well, in Genesis 18, 9 through 10, we see a similar account where the angel of the Lord comes and visits Abram and Sarai. And then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent, and said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. This is, of course, after they tried to solve the problem themselves by having Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian maid, have a son in her place. This was trying to fix the problem herself. God says, no, this is my plan, and I will do it. Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. 
Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, or shall I have pleasure, my Lord, by being old, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Well, what is the answer to this rhetorical question? Why did she laugh? Because she didn't believe he could. She does not understand the power of God. She does not understand the faithfulness of God. But that is what they are about to learn. And they are going to learn it so well that they will never forget it. And generations after will be able to look back to their lives and see it, just as we are doing today. And so the angel of the Lord adds to this rhetorical question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? This is the answer that he wants them to learn. The answer is no. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. And so he repeats his promise that at the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And guess what? She does. This should be no big surprise to us, but it was to them. This is why we have progressive revelation, so that we can build on their knowledge and understand the elementary things that they learned so that we can put trust and faith and faithfulness and dependence in the past and look forward to moving beyond those elementary things into greater and deeper maturity. All these things that took generations for people to learn, we get to learn by observing their lives. And that is some of the great significance of studying the life of Abram, not just seeing God's plan, but God's faithfulness. Moving forward here to the geography. These are going to be major themes, not just in Genesis, but in all of the Pentateuch and in all of the Old Testament. Seed, land, and blessing. And we begin by looking at Terah's household. Now, in the way that Moses has structured this book, we don't yet see the problem in this. But as we move on, we will understand that it is a problem here that is occurring. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife. Now, this is one reason why I think Abram may have been his youngest son, because Haran has died already, and Nahor stays behind. But Abram, with his stepsister, Sarai, and the orphaned Lot, all go with the father's household, Terah, to Haran. So Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son's wife, his son Abram's wife. And in Genesis 20, Verses 12 through 13, we see Abram answering Abimelech about why he claimed that Sarah is his sister, and he says, I wasn't lying. She actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. So Terah, we know, at least had children by two women, and one of these women gave birth to Sarai 10 years after Abram. And this daughter of Terah became the wife of Abram. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house 
that I said to her, this is the kindness which you would show me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. Claim this relationship to me rather than marriage, is what he is saying. But she is both his sister, part of his father's household here, and his wife. It is on the basis of his relationship to her as his wife, though, that she is to go with him into the land of promise. But here we see the family of Terah is traveling together because they are the family of Terah. But in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, Stephen, when he gives a revelation of the history of Israel in order to spur the Jews on to faith, he says, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. So while Abram was still in the land of Ur, before they left Ur to go to Haran, Abram received word from the Lord and said to him, leave your country. Okay. He left Ur of the Chaldeas and your relatives. Oops. He doesn't do that. And come into the land that I will show you. So they leave the household of Terah because Terah's son got this revelation from God. God told them to move. And so they obey, but only partially. The word of God has not yet sunk in that every word of it is important. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God, moved. God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. Now, I forgot to include this verse, but this verb, settled, is the same one used in the Septuagint in the account of Babel, where God told them to go out and spread themselves over the world, and instead what they did was settled. They found a land that looked nice to them, and they decided, we're going to stay here. This is what happened in the journey of Terah. God had promised Abram, told him to get out and leave his father behind. His father leads the charge. They get to Haran and they say, I think we'll settle here. Guess what? God doesn't move Abram out until his father is dead. And then God says, all right, now get up and let's go. Notice here in red, I have Haran spelt differently because this is also in the English text, the same name as their older brother Haran. But in the Hebrew, it is not the same. Haran, the location, has a hard H sound, one you need to get a little phlegm behind. This is called a het in Hebrew, that letter. And Haran, the name of the older son, is a soft H sound that has no phlegm. It's just air passing through your breath. And so Haran and Haran are two different things. This is clear in the Hebrew, not as clear in the English. So I often will transliterate the C-H-A-R-R-A-N as Haran. Why is this important? Because this is part of the law. This is part of God's word. And God promised saying, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away. And has that happened yet? Nope. Not the smallest letter or stroke. The King James says not one jot nor tittle. 
shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. This could be considered a jot, a connecting point here. Even that has not disappeared from the word of God. Look how faithful he is. We know that Haran, the location, and Haran, the older brother of Abram, is not the same thing. And so we see Terah's journey bringing his household from Ur up along the rivers of Mesopotamia into the land of Haran on the border of Syria and Turkey today. This is not the land of Israel, is it? It's not part of the promised land. It's quite a journey. It's about the length of Montana, 600 miles. They went by foot with whatever wealth and family they carried out of Ur. But they went to Haran after God promised them to bring them to a place that he would settle them in, Abram specifically. But Abram didn't know where they were going. He didn't know that the end location was Canaan. He just knew that God was going to lead. In Hebrews 11.8, it says, By faith Abram, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So yes, they went to Haran and they settled in Haran, but they didn't stop short of Canaan because they decided, no, we don't want to go any further. We're not going to walk into that blessing. God was not bringing them into that blessing because they were not being faithful. Abram had left together with his father, so God stopped directing them. He stopped bringing them all the way into Canaan so that Abram would not receive this blessing. It belonged to him. It is his inheritance by promise of God, but he would not experience it while he was not or while he had not learned to be faithful to God. Remember in Acts 7-2, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he left, before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Why this is important to say is because in verse 31, we see that their intention was to go into the land of Canaan. I don't think they knew that this was the land that they were going into, but they intended to receive God's promise. God's promise would be the land of Canaan. Moses, writing this to the generation of Israel that is about to go into the land of Canaan, is saying, they had the same promise of a blessing that you have. Go into the land of Canaan and do it my way. In Numbers, when they are at Kadesh Barnea and they send in these spies and the spies come back and say, it's too scary and God's not big enough. God says, all right, you don't get to go in and receive the blessing. You will die in the wilderness and your children will go in. But guess what they do afterwards? They say, no, but we will go in. God warns Moses, don't let them do that. I am not going to fight ahead of them. Thousands of them die because they didn't trust God to bring them in. But then once God told them, don't go in, their sin nature says, you want to bet? We're going to take the land. 
we're just going to do it without you. And it fails miserably. And every single one in that generation, except for Caleb and Joshua, who were faithful, die in the wilderness and do not get to enter into the blessing. This is the warning that Moses is instructing them with. Abram was not faithful, and until he was faithful, God did not continue to lead him into the land. But when he was, God brought him in, and God gave him a covenant that could not be broken. Notice here in Acts 7, 4, it was after his father died that God had him moved. Now God is leading, not Terah. And this is the maturity that God wants his people to have because he is giving them a very, very weighty task. To be the means and mechanism by which God restores glory to this earth. Through the king that would sit over their kingdom and rule over the whole world. Through a bloodline that would come through them. Through regeneration that would come from their Savior, from their Messiah. And God gives them unconditional promises. And that is a scary thing to give to an unregenerate people. No matter what, he says, this land belongs to you. God covenanted himself with a people who had not shown themselves yet to be faithful. Because God was going to bring them into faithfulness. He does give them a conditional covenant to regulate their experience of that blessing. To train them. To bring them to the point where they would recognize their need for God and full dependence on him. But no matter what, he uses Israel to do this. And so God has to train them. And he does, and he is a very good and faithful trainer. And so this is the record then of Moses, that the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. He was 70 when he first began to have children. He had Haran, the oldest son, who died young. He had Nahor and Abram. Abram when he was 130 years old. And for 75 years, Abram did not receive the blessing that God had promised because he was not faithful to every jot and tittle of the word of God. He was being a little bit like an Eve here. Oh, but did God really say, well, kind of. No, that's not the answer. God did not say, bring your father Terah with you. He said, do not bring your father Terah with you. But this is all leading towards God's plan for blessing. God's plan for vindication of the human race, of his beloved creation, which he bestowed his image on, and of creation itself. And he begins with the land. Now the Lord said to Abram, this now can be either a conjunctive or disjunctive, which means it doesn't follow immediately after the previous passage. This is a summary. This is a summary of what God told Abram. The Lord said to Abram, go forth. 
The uniqueness of this is that it has the sense of get yourself out, separate yourself from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house. In other words, Abram, you've been unfaithful. Be faithful now. Now that you have learned, trust me. It took him 75 years to get to this point where he's finally ready to take that first step. And God says, okay, take that first step. Separate yourself. And it will go to the land which I will show you. Now, Abram does this. He doesn't do it perfectly. But God trains him as he goes to do this perfectly. At each step, God guides him. We're going to see the very first thing that he is going to guide him to do is to separate from Lot after he enters into the land. And Lot is going to be a bit of a third wheel here. Abram is going to have to share part of his promise with Lot, or at least part of the location of his promise. Lot's going to take the best portion of it. But God is faithfully going to give to Abraham his full blessing. But bringing Lot with him delays Abram's receiving the full blessing. Because Abram was not fully faithful. But God works with us even when we don't fully understand our own faithfulness to him yet. And this is an important concept to grasp as well. God didn't demand absolute, perfect, unhindering, unwavered faithfulness from Abram before he began to work in Abram. Before he promised to Abram guaranteed blessing. Because it's not here about the integrity of the believer, but the integrity of the object believed. If that integrity of the object believed is God, then that is a strong object. It is God who is leading him. It is God who is training him to be faithful. So even though Abram brings Lot with him, God allows him to come in and receive partial blessing. And he trains him to be more faithful. And he gives him more experience of that blessing. What is God's promise then? He says, separate yourself from everything the world had to give you. Walk away from it with nothing and come to me and receive everything I have to give you. He says, I will make you a great nation. You don't need to do this yourself. Like the rest of the nations trying to make themselves great. I will bless you. It's not the work of your hands. It's the work of my hands. And I will make your name great. Well, in order to make someone a great nation, they need people to fill that nation. They need a place for the people to be. And they need some sort of unifying element. You know, it's often said that of this nation, we used to have at least patriotism, our love for freedom that holds us together. We need a unifying element in order to be a nation. We need assimilation. We need the people to be unified around one idea, one concept. For them, here, this is faithfulness of God. The promise that God gave them. The constitution he will give them in the law. Ultimately, the new covenant the regeneration, the blessing that he gives them in bringing them into 
fellowship with a perfect and holy God. You can't do that without regeneration. He gives them a place. He promises them a plot of land, a location in which they can have these blessings. God is concerned with location. He created the physical world for dominion, to be inhabited, and to be a place of fellowship and glory to him. And he promises them a people, a nation. While Abram has watched nearly his entire family die off, and he is sitting here with his barren wife and his orphaned nephew, God says, you're going to be a great people because I am going to make it happen. This is going to take faith. This is going to take God teaching him faith. Because that's not something we learn on our own. And he says here, I will bless you. Now this becomes a major theme, especially for Israel, this blessing and cursing. Israel has received at least the first portion of the law at this point when they receive Genesis, or at least Moses has. And in Leviticus 26, there are five cycles of blessing and cursing promised on Israel. And here, Moses has organized Genesis to show them the blessing and cursing of God. Because already at this point, when we meet Abram, there have been five blessings declared on creation. In Genesis 1.22, to the living beings that God created, that he put mankind over. In 1.28, to mankind themselves, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to rule over it. He gave them blessing to do this. In 2.3, when he blessed all of creation after finishing it. In 5.2, when he blessed, or when he repeats his blessing to mankind and, Ab uh, and Adam. And in 9.1, when he tells Noah to go forth and multiply on the earth, he blesses him to do this. Five cycles of blessing before we get to Abram, but cursing as well. In Genesis 3.14, God curses the serpent for beguiling the woman and tempting the man. In verse 17, creation, the land, the things in it, the things God made that he put mankind over are cursed because of man's actions. In 4.11, Cain is cursed for killing someone bearing the image of God. In 5.29, we are reminded of the curse on the land. And in 9.25, Noah curses Canaan. And then we move into Abram's blessing, where God promises him five blessings. No mention of cursing. Because we're looking here at an unconditional covenant in its nascent form. Chapter 12 is not a covenant. It is a promise of a covenant. Chapter 15 is a covenant. God is going to unconditionally promise the success of everything that he has promised, and he is going to do it. And in the law, in Leviticus 26, and then repeated to the next generation of Israel about to go into the land, God gives them five promises of blessing. 
but also tells them that in their process of learning faithfulness, they are going to go through five cycles of cursing. Five cycles in which they are chastised by God on a national level. And you know, they are currently going through one of those cycles. They have been since about 70 AD. We see God's faithfulness to them on the horizon as we look forward to his return where he is going to establish his kingdom in Israel. We are smack dab in the middle of this. This isn't just history. This is everything. This is our future. God's promised blessing is guaranteed. And our faithfulness allows us to experience it. It belongs to the people of Israel. We have been grafted into this promise. Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 and 2 says, Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. The 70 nations that we just saw in Genesis 11, 10 and 11, God is pulling out a special nation to put on top of all of them, through which he will rule all of them. All these blessings that he was about to describe and over, uh, will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Each generation has this offer to them. If they walk with the Lord, they will experience the blessings that God promised in the land. God says to them, I will make your name great. This answers the question that arises in the Babel account. When they all said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. A name here being reputation. It's actually the Hebrew word Shem, the name of Noah's son. Great reputation. God is fulfilling through Abram and the name that he is making for Abram, this great reputation of being God's channel of blessing. He is fulfilling his promises to the patriarchs that have come before. Well, that is command number one. God has two commands for Abram. He says, go forth, separate yourself, get yourself out. Everything that we just saw promised is guaranteed on that act of faithfulness. When you do this, you will experience these blessings. But God has another commandment for him as well. He says, and so, assuming Adam's or uh, Abram's obedience to the command to separate, you shall be a blessing, he says. Now, we read this in our English translation, and it's a bit, well, I, I don't think we're confused when we read it, but I think we read it wrong. Because in the Hebrew, it's very clearly a command. This is not a promise. This is a command. You shall be a blessing. We are going to see this fulfilled in the life of Abram as well. In chapter 12, he begins to separate himself. In chapter 13, he finishes separating himself. At that point, he has finished 
obediently what God told him to do in the first command. And at that point, he is prepared now to be a blessing. And in chapter 14, what happens? But his nephew Lot is taken captive. And the nations need his help. And what does he do? He comes to their aid. He is a blessing to them. He serves God by helping to vindicate these people. And when it is all said and done, he has learned not to take the glory from men, but to give the glory to God. This is actually the full course of what we are going to be looking at in the next six weeks, of how Abram goes from this initial obedience to obeying the second command as well, to be a blessing. This is what drives Israel out of the land with Jacob's children. They stop being a blessing and start being a curse to the people around them. And God pulls them out of the land and drives them into Egypt to learn to be a blessing once again. And so God tells Abram, when you get there into that land, be a blessing to your neighbors. Don't be a warmonger. Go and live among them peacefully because I am the one who is going to give you the land. He says, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Now notice this movement from a plural to a singular. Looking at a great category, all of those who bless you, they will be blessed. This doesn't necessarily here look to the individual in this lifetime, but as a whole, they will be blessed for blessing Israel. Because they are going to share in Israel's blessing. But now on the individual, the one who curses, I will curse. Moses uses two different words for curse, and we should probably do so in our English translation as well. The one who curses you is to consider them insignificant, not to recognize their blessing from God, to look at them as weak, degenerate, rejected by God. This is anti-Semitism. This is something that is cursed by God. So those who look down, who look lowly at Israel, will be cast off or bound up, which is the other Hebrew word for curse that Moses uses. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And how does he do this? He literally does bless them from the body of Abram. This man will not be your heir, speaking of Eliezer of Damascus, but one who will come forth from your body, he shall be your heir. Speaking of Isaac and looking forward to the ultimate fulfillment of the seed promise. One which we see in First Chronicles. In fact, the life of David, especially as God reveals it to the prophet Nathan here, greatly reflects the life of Abram. He says, now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pastures, from following the sheep to be leader over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies before you. Blessing and cursing. I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. 
I will appoint a place for my people Israel, a location, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, when David dies, in other words, I will set up one of your descendants after you, not your descendant, one of your descendants' future, who will be of your sons. He is going to come from the line of David. And I will establish his kingdom, God says. He shall build for me a house. And I will establish his throne forever. Whichever of you were in the Sunday school this morning where you looked at Revelation chapter 4 and 5, you saw this. You saw the beginning of this house that Jesus has built for God the Father. This kingdom of priests. And God has established Jesus' throne forever. The rest of the book of Revelation that you're about to go through in the next few weeks is the fulfillment of this promise. God is establishing the throne of Jesus Christ forever. He shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This is the beginning here of the Abrahamic covenant that we see in Genesis chapter 12. We'll see it repeated again and again and again and again in the book of Genesis because this is the hope that Israel is entering into the land of Israel on. God promises them land because creation has been cursed. And God is working through Israel to fix this problem. He has promised them a seed because death has been introduced and only God is able to fix the problem of humanity, the problem in humanity. And he has promised them blessing because relationship has been broken. Fellowship has been broken with God and there is only one way to fix that. Now I say it's repeated and repeated and repeated in the Old Testament, especially in Genesis. The entire Old Testament deals with this covenant. This is the Old Covenant that is fulfilled in the New. The land that Abram is promised is the great occupation of the law. Living in this land that God promised them receiving this land that God promised them. The story of the Pentateuch is getting into the land. The law is how to live once they're in it. Now the topic of the land never disappears from the pages of the Old Testament, even once they're living in the land. These cycles of judgment, some of them take them out of the land, but they always have the guarantee that they will return because this is how God is fulfilling his promises to all of humanity. The Davidic covenant, which we just read a few passages from in First Chronicles. This is the great occupation of the history of Israel in the land. 
looking forward to the Messiah, the King of God's choosing, the one who will reign over creation. And the blessing is the new covenant, which is the occupation of all of the prophets. Because this is the great hope of Israel. This is how all of their promises are solidified. Everything is transitory without regeneration, without eternal life. It's hard to pin down a single passage that teaches the new covenant because all of the prophets teach it in great detail. The blessing from the very beginning is what we are looking forward to. The land of Israel, which will sit over all of creation with King Jesus as its head, ruling over the world, God's creation, the king of God's choosing, and a regenerate people who share in the life of Jesus Christ, who has been faithful, who is perfect and righteous, and we receive his righteousness. And so this is where we're going in Genesis. This is where we are going in everything we will study from here forward in God's word. The fulfillment of the promise of land, seed, and blessing. This is our very real and true hope today, that each of these promises to Israel is fulfilled because we share in these promises through Israel, through our regeneration, which we have received from Jesus Christ. The ultimate fulfillment of that is when Israel herself receives regeneration. Right now, we are partakers of the new covenant. The new covenant belongs to Israel. We have not co-opted it. It does not belong to us now. It belongs to them. And God will be faithful to fulfill that to them. And so in Genesis 12 through 25, we begin to see God fixing everything that went wrong in Genesis 1 through 11. God prepares to vindicate his purpose in creation through a single nation, Israel. And he does so by separating them from the world, training them in obedience and promising them ultimate blessing. And he does this to restore creation, the land element of the covenant, by restoring man's delegated rule over creation, the promise of the seed, and by restoring man's relationship with God, the promise of regeneration, so that all these blessings will be experienced not just temporally, but eternally, as God intended them to be. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. We thank you that you've seen fit to tell us ahead of time your plan for creation, for the world, and for eternal glory with you. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus, who has secured our salvation, our regeneration. He is the new covenant that we abide in today. So we praise you that this is a guaranteed future experience for us, and that even our regeneration today is a present experience in the body of Christ. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>